our brother Mark. We're going to finish this gospel. We'll see him again sometime in the future, but just for a while, we'll say goodbye. And we're going to visit another old friend. We're going to the book of Numbers, fourth book of the Pentateuch, the book of wonderings. Ever wonder where you're going? Well, maybe you'll find your way as we make it through the book of Numbers. You know, while we're there, you know, the book of Numbers is the uh, journey of the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. It could have taken them 11 days in that, through that wilderness, but rather than the 11-day journey, it took them 40 years, and the first generation didn't even make it through. And so it's a type, and we're going to pull out those types of what it means to walk with the Lord through the wilderness. We don't have to have a 40-year or a lifetime of wanderings. We can have a short journey through the wilderness, but we all go through the wilderness from time to time. 11-day journey, it's a measured time, a measured duration of time that God gives us to, to learn certain lessons, but he wants us to dwell in the promises. We don't want to spend our lifetime trying to figure things out. So that's why we're going there. So as we Uh, are here in the book of Mark. If you'll stand, let me read the last few verses. Now you remember, we've already covered the first part of this chapter back in the fourth day of April. So if you want to catch the first part of this chapter, you have to go back through the archives and listen about the resurrection. But we'll finish today beginning in verse 9. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And so then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your word. We're going to look at this time after the resurrection of Christ, the table that Jesus met the disciples at here. 
uh, and the influence that that has had and has upon the ministry in the body of Christ. And then, obviously, the confirmation of his word. So, notice here as we are led to this last uh, couple paragraphs of Mark's gospel that uh, they're gathered together eating at the table. You know, eating is a very interesting activity that takes place in our human culture. Uh, we're not like the animals. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe sometimes we are. <laughs> That's debatable. If you've ever been on a construction site, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some hungry men don't the manners seem to go by the wayside. Oh, that fell on the floor. That's not a problem, you know. <laughs> but for the most part, we really don't give it a lot of thought uh, when it comes to eating our meals. And yet we should because there's some significant conversations that can take place around the dining table. You know, Jesus taught uh, several things around uh, the dining table, didn't he? Uh, with his disciples and with others who uh, were uh, part of the establishment. Uh, as you recall, the Jewish nation had uh, very strict dietary laws under the Levitical order, and uh, these were uh, these restrictions were not observed by the Gentiles. And uh, that was one thing, among other things, that caused a separation between uh, the Jews and, and the Gentiles, you know, that lasted actually for centuries. Only the, it was only the Gentile proselytes that were allowed to eat with the Jewish people. And so, what is it about eating that's significant here? And it has to do with the idea of sharing our substance with others. It's actually a time of communion where we're sharing things that are common. In this case, it would be the food. And we're sharing our thoughts, our lives with one another. And this is the common activity around the table. If you uh, are given to that as a Christian family, you, you know, the uh, nuclear family, the father, the, the mother, the children sitting around the table, and you converse with one another during that period of time. We had, uh, we've got many fond memories, uh, and still are creating some of those with our children. And so. Thankfully, uh, some of the food items and the restrictions that were under the Levitical law have been lifted uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're no longer under the law. And if you desire to follow that dietary law, you're free to do that. It doesn't make you more holy or more righteous. Uh, It probably makes you a little more healthy. Uh, But that's uh, your choice and mine as well. Um, But as the church uh, in the New Testament grew... Um, it was integrated into one body, and this lifting of these restrictions helped sort of unite the Jew and the Gentile. That was the big issue at the beginning of the church. It was hard for the Jewish Christians, those who received Jesus as Messiah, to drop some of those traditions, uh, the, the commands that were given in the law, and, and many of them continued to observe that, and so it was sort of difficult uh, for the the Jews to intermingle initially with the Gentiles. And so that was sort of Paul's job was to help unite those two groups. Uh, you know, Peter even stumbled over this as you, as you read through the book of Galatians, this whole idea of eating together. It's a big deal, eating together. And so Jesus uh, is like him to come as they're sitting at table. They're dining. They're, they're eating their evening meal together when Jesus shows up. And so this... Uh, concept of eating and fellowshipping around the table is something that didn't originate with 
man. It originated with God. In fact, it was introduced sort of uh, in a more pronounced way uh, during that uh, inauguration of the Levitical order. Uh, the person who wanted to sacrifice and make sacrifice to Yahweh would bring his sacrifice to the priest and they would slay it uh, and transfer the sins and sprinkle the blood around the altar and then a portion would be given in certain of these offerings to the family as they would be there in Yahweh's tabernacle, Yahweh's house and eat with him, share a meal with and eat before the Lord with their family. You know, a person would commune in their hearts with the Lord at that time like we commune with the Lord in our worship services. And the Holy Spirit was there to help them. Uh, not quite like we have the indwelling, but he was there to aid them. Now, if you want to kind of get a feel for this, uh, you can read First Samuel 1, where Elkanah and his two wives, uh, Penina and, and um, Hannah, uh, went up to the tabernacle, and she's, she gets a double portion, but she's so distraught she can't eat it, and she's just praying in her heart. This is the whole idea of bringing your family before Yahweh and enjoying a meal in his presence. Now, as we come into the New Testament, we have, of course, the agape feast, the love feast that were spoken of. Jude talks about them being invaded by the knuckleheads, the false teachers and all. And that was uh, a reflection of what was going on in the early church. They, would, they broke bread together. They spent time with each other. And this is a good thing. And, um, so having that as a concept today, you know, we... we sort of churches sort of get made fun of of all those Christians do is eat. Well, everybody eats, but we like to eat together. And it's a good thing to do. You know, we have our agape feast here. We have uh many times we invite people over to our homes and, and break bread together. Those are important things. But what's happening in those times is there's a Unknown, sometimes unknowingly to us, in fact, many times unknowingly, there's a bonding that takes place. It, it, this whole thing is symbolic of oneness. This is what God has called us to in the body of Christ, to be one with one another and to be one with Him. And so as we're sitting around the table, we're all eating from the same dishes and all. And so what's strengthening you is strengthening me, and we're all strengthened by the same thing. There's that oneness. And then we also begin to share our hearts. And so we're all deriving strength from one source. And so our source is obviously the, the Lord and through what he's given us to eat. So eating's a big deal. And so Jesus comes uh, into this intimate setting uh, because he wants to join the meal. Uh, you know, in one part of scripture, the first thing he does is, uh, he says, you got anything to eat? You know, <laughs> Jesus was always eating with Sinners, even you know, I just this is a big deal, and we should make it a big deal in in our church churches today. But notice what took place here in verse fourteen, and it's it's something that we all experience. Uh, we may not always appreciate it, but it is a healthy exercise that happens in our life. It says that Jesus rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of heart. Um, unbelief really is is the word uh, in English means no faith. Epistus is faith, and this is apistius, and this is uh, literally no faith. It is the rejection of truth. Uh, in this case, they rejected the testimonies of the other disciples. Uh, 
They, as we read there in verse 9, they rejected the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Uh, they rejected uh, the testimony of the two fellows on the road to Emmaus. That's a hint at that there. And uh, Verse 12. And so uh, these are important things to recognize that uh, how God's position on this. The, the law is very clear. We use this today. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. This principle is enough to have a person put to death. So when there's two or three witnesses sharing the same thing, it's probably true. And so uh, we're exhorted to believe them. And to reject that is to reject the truth. And this is uh, why Jesus is reproving them. Think for a moment. Mary Magdalene, who had a radical conversion, she's now a very trustworthy, faithful servant of God. One whose character does not lie. And the same would be true of Cleopas and the other fellow that was with them on the road to Emmaus. These These are solid believers. They're not given over to lying. So when they say that they have witnessed the resurrected Christ and spent time with them, their witness should be received. It should be accepted as true, but yet the disciples blew it off. Well, there's reasons why, but it's really there's no good reason uh, for them to not accept. And so, in reality, they were not really rejecting Mary and the other disciples. In reality, they're rejecting the truth of God because these were his witnesses. Just as when you testify and give your personal testimony of what God has done in your life and for someone to reject that, they're not only rejecting you, but beyond that, more importantly, who are we, right? They're rejecting God. And that's not a good thing for them. And so this is why this whole thing of unbelief and no faith and this hardness of heart, this is serious stuff. This is not something we need to play around with. We, and, and therefore, we understand that because Jesus rebuked them. Now, I don't like to be on the, other, the end of a rebuke, but I have been and I've deserved them. Um, why, did, why were they unyielding in their minds? Well, it's pretty easy and safe to say they were depressed. Now, there's depression and anxiety are really sort of the same kind of a thing, but it's our perspective on things that probably makes the difference between the two. The depression is your focus on past, the failures, the the what-ifs, and why did that happen, and I wish I wouldn't have done that, and all that past stuff that's brought you to the place where you wish you were not. That's what causes depression. What causes anxiety is you and me looking to the future that we feel is very uncertain. We don't really know what's going to happen. Well, maybe in the end we do, but what about in between now and then? You know, and we have these fears that creep into our hearts and our minds, and it it, it causes us to be anxious. Both are the same, and they're in the positions of non-faith. And God has called us to 
a position of faith, to trust him, to rest in him, to have to be at peace, to learn how to cast all our cares upon him, because he really does care for us. He's with us. He's promised never to leave us. He's promised never to forsake us. This hardness of heart is a it's this unfeeling, it's this unyielding frame of mind. You're There's coldness. They they were blowing Mary off. They blew off Cleopas. Oh, come on, man. You know, that kind of thing. Just stubborn. It's really, this wasn't the first time. And so seeing the, I want you to understand, these guys are the apostles. They became great men of faith. But their early beginnings they, it was rough sledding for them. They had trouble accepting Jesus for who he was. Remember in Mark 6, somewhere along in the 50s there, 52 I think maybe, uh, when they got in the boat and they were arguing about you know, whose fault was it that they didn't bring bread, you know? And Jesus said, oh my goodness, I chose these guys. No, he didn't say that. He might have thought that, but he didn't say it, right? But it says that they, they did not understand about the loaves, the miracle that he had just pulled off And he wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about the doctrine of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. To beware of that. And they did not understand because their hearts were hardened. And see, that's the natural state of man. In our fallen nature, our natural man is a state of unyieldedness, a state of stubbornness, a state of hardness of heart. They should have understood who Jesus was, who Jesus is when they saw him work that miracle and they failed to grasp the significance of what happened before them. How much more has God done in our lives? Think of all the things that he's done in your life and through your life. And yet, when it comes to certain things, we think, where's God in all this? And we doubt. You know, see, we're, we're cut out of the same fabric, I'm afraid. And we are prone to the same things. And that's why the Lord chose plain, ordinary people you know, if, if if we were to go back in time and look at these guys, we're thinking, why did the Lord choose these guys? Those guys? You want, you know, the all-American guy, right, to be the champion. You know, the Lord's not that way. He just, he picked the least likely candidates. So seeing that and understanding that should give you hope. It gives me hope. The point is, we must be careful because we are in the flesh. We are not living in a glorified state. We are prone to unbelief. We are prone to hardness of heart. It will come in if we allow our anxiety to take over. If we dwell on the future, wondering how it's all going to work out, and are there not many reasons to have anxiety right now? I fight it every day. Are you depressed about what happened and you're not real happy the way, you, the way life has brought you to this day and you wish it would have been different and you're depressed? Shake off the unbelief. Cast away the hardness of heart. We must learn to look at this as sin. It is pride. and We must confess and forsake. It's not humility. Humility. It is pride. 
scriptures have several examples that will bear this out. And by way of reminder, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, bring your Bible next time. Or open your device and find it. It's on the screen otherwise. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as the iniquity in idolatry. And because you, referring to Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. You see, the disciples were rejecting the witness and the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the other two disciples. And this is the same attitude. You see, Saul is a type of the flesh. He is a flesh man. He is a natural man. And he is living after those natural tendencies. And it cost him his leadership role. He would, his line would be cut off. But notice the, what Samuel says to him. Rebellion which is revolt. It is resistance to God's rule. The natural man does not want to submit to God's ways, to God's truth. It's the natural man's basic heart position. It is as witchcraft. It's just like, and it's translated in other ways, divination. And so, rebellion... What it does is it opens a person up to satanic attack. How many people on this earth understand this? You see, this is exactly what Satan did. This is exactly what Satan is. Lucifer and his rebellion and his revolt against Yahweh. And so... We are of that ilk until we are delivered from it. I think it's important that we be reminded as Christians about the unseen realm around us. It's so easy to forget that we are in a battle. We're in a battle against our own flesh, our own fallenness, but also the demonic realm in which Satan operates the kingdom of darkness it is somewhere between our physical realm in which we think is the reality between this reality and the ultimate reality of heaven god's very presence somewhere between the, that kingdom of god the kingdom of light there dwells a kingdom of darkness of which satan is the prince and power of the air and that Demonic influence, that rebellious influence, influences the natural man. I'm going into a little bit of detail because of what you'll see here, what follows in the context here. So, 
as we are born into this world, we are we enter into the default position of being part of the kingdom of darkness. We're blind. We do not see. We're altogether, as David said in Psalm 51, born into sin. We don't see God. We don't understand God. And Jesus told one of the smartest rabbis and teachers in Israel, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Your spirit must be made alive for you to see and comprehend the kingdom of God. In order to see the kingdom of light, you must have spiritual birth. And so this is very important. As we read there, uh, those who receive the gospel uh, are saved. We're redeemed. We now see the kingdom of light. For those who reject the gospel, they remain in the kingdom of darkness. They, know, they can neither see God nor understand things of God. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit. And unfortunately, those who reject the gospel and are not born again will face condemnation, as we've read there. And that is not... That's a terrible thing for anyone to experience. Now, we're born into this sin, this kingdom of darkness, and there is a time, a stated number, a stated number of days that each person has, uh, that there's sort of an innocence there. But there comes a day that uh, we're, we become accountable to God, and we must make a choice. We can choose to leave the kingdom of darkness and enter into the kingdom of light. We receive the gospel message. We receive the truth and understand that we are fallen sinners and we are in need of forgiveness. And we can ask God for it and we can escape, as it were, this kingdom of darkness. Only God knows these matters when it comes to that day of accountability. No man knows that. They're probably different for each and every person as far as the number of days. Many people refuse to accept the fact that in our fallen nature that we are revolting against God. But the scripture is clear. Colossians one twenty one, And you, that would be me, <laughs> and you, once were alienated and enemies in our mind by our wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. So once we're born again, we begin to comprehend the spiritual dimension that was previously hidden to us. And one of the things we quickly discover is that we uh, are engaged in a spiritual warfare that we did not know existed prior to that. Once we are introduced and brought into the kingdom of light, we now enter into spiritual warfare with the kingdom of darkness. Before spiritual birth, we were unaware of this. And now we are taught by the scriptures to arm ourselves, to prepare ourselves for that battle. I've heard so many times, and even in my own life, I didn't have this much trouble 
in my life until I became a Christian. I mean, things were going fairly smooth. I had my ups and downs. But man, stuff that began to happen after I made a commitment to Christ. Whoa. Yeah, that's what we refer to as spiritual warfare. So understand, again, spiritual warfare and this whole thing of witchcraft and divination, it's it's the natural man's religion. It's the natural man who rebels against God. You automatically come under this control of divination. You know, it's not it's not the you know, the witch with the hat and the word on her nose stirring the pot here to conjure up some spell. You know, that's just some, you know, crazy idea. But it involves really there are four basic classifications of divination. One is the astrology, it's the you know, the examining the position of the stars as if their movements and their positions have uh, influence on humankind, you know. Uh, speaking with dead spirits is another uh, classification. Uh, examining of animal parts. And the idea there is the idea of sacrifice. These witches and these warlocks and these people that give themselves over, first of all, they lust for power. And they want to have it over other people. And so these demonic entities, these bodiless entities that live in this unseen realm, this kingdom of darkness, influence these people. They give them the power that they're lusting for. But they're temperamental. And they they torture them and scare them. So they, in order to appease them, worship them. And they do that through the animal sacrifice. And so this is the idea that's kind of behind that there. And in doing so they are deceived and yet they receive more power that of which they can seek to control others and then the fourth classification of this divination is the idea of casting lots uh, proverbs 16 a lot a lot is cast into the lap but every decision is from the lord proverbs 18:18 18, 18. casting lots causes contentions to cease to cease and keeps apart the mighty so the idea there is through casting of lots is lo- removing the human bias that we have uh, in certain matters at hand. And so uh, we're, by casting the lots, we're sort of taking that out of that realm and trusting the gods, or in this case Yahweh, to have the final say on things. And for those that are lost, it's these demons that make the choice, at least from their perspective. So, as I said, they're very, these demons are desire worship. Uh, they're very temperamental, and they influence these people's lives. They influence the lost. The people that are in the kingdom of darkness are under the way, as the Bible says, of the wicked one. I believe uh, a familiar spirit is just that. A familiar spirit is one that is familiar with you. He's probably been assigned, just like we say, we have guardian angels, right? Each one of us, you know, God has someone watching over us. And probably some of you guys got two or three because you're, you're, you're not careful as you should be. I'm one of those, so. Um, but I think the enemy does that too. I think we're, you know, they assign certain demons to keep people in bondage and, and tempt people. I can't really prove that, but I think that's what the idea of a familiar spirit is. They know everything about you. They understand human nature and fallenness, and they work us. But these demons who influence these witches and all, they manipulate them through guilt, through fear, and those are strong emotions, and they are destructive emotions. And actually, I think this is what 
drove Saul in the wrong direction. Notice at the the day before he died, what did he do? What was his activity? He went to inquire of the witch at Endor, consulting the dead because God had forsaken him. God had forsaken him because Saul had forsaken God. He made the choice. And God said, okay, fine. I'll give you over to that. And see, this is what happens. People uh, give the Lord a bad rap. Well, why does God, if he's so, such a God of love, why does he send people to hell? Well, let me tell you. Jesus doesn't send anybody to hell. People go there on their, because on their own volition, their own will. They do not want God in their life. They don't want God to be part of their life. They don't love the truth. They could care less about things of God. And so God simply accommodates those people who reject truth, who have no faith, who've hardened their hearts, and he says, okay, I'm going to honor your wishes. I have created a place where I am not. That place is referred to as hell. And eventually hell will be delivered up into the place referred to as the lake of fire. That is the place that God has withdrawn his life in his very presence. It is the, it is the land of the dead. And people go there because they do not want God in their lives. So don't lay that at the feet of the Lord. It won't work. So this rebellion. Why rebellion and snipping rebellion in the life of a youngster right out of the gate is so very important. Rebellion must be hit, hit head on with a rebuke. Now, just for a moment here, let's backtrack and think, how did Jesus come across? What was the tone of his voice when he rebuked the disciples? Well, let me ask you this. How was the Lord's voice in your soul when you've received a rebuke from the Lord? Now, I'll share a personal testimony. Years ago, I was out running, jogging, and I sort of, in a lackadaisical manner, I was meditating and running and talking, having a conversation in my heart with the Lord. And, and I said, you know, I, I really, uh, I don't really, I, I, I hate walking by faith, Lord. Whoops. <laughs> you know, I, and, and I mean, it was like immediately, the Lord says, why do you hate what I love? Oh, I just repented immediately. You know, I was being lackadaisical, so it was sort of a more, more of a light-hearted comment, but immediately the Holy Spirit arrested me because that is not the state that God wants his children to take. We want to see, we want to see it all right here. We don't like walking by faith and trust naturally. But that was a, that's a complete flesh out right there. And the Lord's voice was very firm, but very gentle. So I don't see Jesus coming here and just, all right, you knuckleheads. How many times did I tell you that I was going to go to the cross and I was going to be turned over to the Gentiles and be scourged and beat beyond recognition and crucified? Really? And then I said I would raise from the dead. Why didn't you believe those guys? You know, why didn't you believe those guys on the road to Emmaus? What about Mary? Was there any change in her life? I mean, how many demons do I have to cast out before you believe who I, who I say I am? No, none of that. Now that may be we, we would rebuke someone, right? But not Jesus. He's very loving and he always asks you the questions, just like he asked me. Why do you hate what I love? Oh, Lord, forgive me. I repent. 
Why, disciples, do you not receive the testimony of Mary? Why are you blowing off the testimony of these men who I appear to? That's not a position of faith. But notice here, 15 through 18, and the commission. And this is so important. The Lord doesn't just stop there and dwell on our sin. He doesn't focus on the failure. He reproves it. It's over. As we confess it and forsake it, he's done with it. We've got, as you guys say, we've got bigger fish to fry here. There's a lot more important things to do in your life besides, you know, mulling over your failures and your sin. Jesus gets right to the point. You guys have a mission. I want you to go into all the world. I want you to uh, preach the gospel. Notice here, he doesn't condemn them for receiving it, but he treats uh, them as he treats us. Go into all the world. Preach and teach and make disciples. Those who believe and are baptized will be saved, and those who do not believe will be condemned. And these are the signs that will follow. Now notice here he says, those that are believe and are baptized will be saved. It doesn't include baptism to make you saved. It's he who believes. That's the emphasis. It's the faith, not the baptism that's important here. Notice, how do I know that? Because he says it's only those who don't believe that are condemned. So the faith is the issue when it comes to salvation, not the baptism. If you really do believe, you're going to obey the command and you will be baptized. That is the point. But let's look at the signs here as we finish this up. In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak with other tongues. If they drink any deadly thing, it'll bring them no harm. They'll lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. These are important things. Now, I know that there's those that question these verses at the end verses 9 through 20. But you know what? It's in here. It doesn't violate the other scriptures. And so I'm fine with what's here. For those who have trouble accepting some of the things that are written here, well, that's on you. I'm going to go with what's here. In my name, they'll cast out demons. Now, this is important. This is why I kind of went into this thing here. This is such an important part of the ministry of the church why you look at Jesus and his ministry you know the, the ministry he gave to the disciples preach the gospel cast out demons and heal the sick this is what the church is supposed to be doing it hasn't changed the mission is there why is the casting out of demons such an important thing because it is a it is a revelation of the two kingdoms that exist there are only two kingdoms in in existence. The kingdom of light, God's kingdom, right? And the kingdom of darkness. When we cast out demons in the name of the Lord, the enemy's kingdom is exposed. He does not like that. Most people, if you were like me before salvation, was I just totally blew off anything spiritual. Oh, you come on. Don't give me that unseen realm stuff. I mean, I just, no. Totally rejected anything spiritual like that until I got saved. So casting out demons reveals that there are two kingdoms. It also reveals that the kingdom of light 
is greater than the kingdom of darkness. And this gives glory and honor to God. And Jesus spent a lot of time casting out the demons. Now, speaking in tongues is a gift. It's the least of the gifts. It's an important gift. But it's the least of the gifts. And so if you don't speak in tongues, it's not going to... You're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to gain salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's just they simply... A gift of God, and we know that all the gifts of God are good. Um, speaking in tongues uh, could be, or the lack of speaking in tongues, rather, could be the, a lack of faith or the lack of being zealous in pursuing it. I believe it is uh, your spirit speaking to God, and everybody has a spirit, so I believe everybody has the potential to speak in another language. And you can go th- um, into Romans 8. There's It becomes part of a a way of us praying and offloading some things that we can't put in our native tongue. Uh, it's an incredible gift. If, it, if it's done publicly and out loud, it needs to be interpreted. And if something like that happens in one of our services, then that's what we wait for. Other than that, we don't, we don't major on the minors. It's an important gift, but it's on the minor side. But let's not ignore the scriptures just because it might be not be to our preference. Speaking in tongues is a good thing. Now, if they drink any deadly thing, it will bring no harm, as we read there. Um, look, our knowledge is limited. We, uh, Because our knowledge is limited, we make mistakes. Our, uh, generally speaking, when people tell us something, our natural reaction to that is that they're telling us the truth. We don't you know, when you have a conversation with someone, you don't think, oh, that guy's just lying to me. Every person that comes up to me and talks to me is lying to me. You know, you don't think that way. We're not built that way. We've, we're built to accept what that person is saying to us is, is true. It's, it's right. And so uh, we assume, and it's okay to, you know, love believes all things, right? We assume that when we're giving very important information uh, that that people are not outright lying to us right to our face. We we just don't go there. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. There are some people that are liars. And therefore, we need discernment and sound advice from the Lord. And so many of us have made mistakes. We've, we've believed things that were not true. and We've maybe taken things and done things that we ought not to do. But here's what I believe. That if we do something in sincerity, and we trust God, but we've been deceived that God is gracious and he's kind. I kind of think that that's what's tied into this last thing. If they'll hay, lay hands on the sick, they'll recover. You know, if you, if you drink some poison, don't drink that, not too late, already down it. you know. Whoa, you know, I believe that the laying on of hands can impart the healing that's needed. And so I just, uh, the laying on of hands is a big it's a big deal. We lay hands on people all the time. It's the idea of transfer. It's the idea of identification. We're identifying with the need. We're identifying with what God is doing. We're transferring grace and the power of God through, through agreeing together. You know, the, uh, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 tells us that is actually a basic fundamental doctrine in the church. Uh, James tells us that we're to, you know, when we're suffering, we're to pray. And we're to uh, call for the elders of the church. We're to lay hands on the sick and to pray for them and anoint them with oil and pray the prayer of faith over them. Uh, 
James five thirteen through twenty. So this is these are things that we're called to. These are basic doctrines that should be practiced in the church today. And one of the things I love about this is that God will confirm His word. He, this is how we'll finish here in the last couple of verses. Jesus, as we're told here, returns to heaven. He's done with his earthly ministry, and as soon as his ascension takes place, he begins his other ministry, his heavenly ministry, as our advocate, as our high, great high priest. You don't need a priest on the earth. We have Jesus, our high priest in heaven. Hebrews 7, chapter 7 through 10, and 1 John 2, 1 through 3 clearly explain that. When he said, it is finished, he meant what he said. His earthly ministry was over. And his heavenly ministry has begun. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, just as predicted. Psalm 110, verse 1, and 1 Peter 3.22, if you're taking notes. One of his great ministries is to give us power to do his will. Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. So Jesus is still serving us. He's still washing our feet. He's still praying on our behalf before the Father, He is still making intercession for you and I. Aren't you glad that you have an advocate with Jesus? And so, my prayer for our church here, understanding that Jesus is our intercessor, I'm praying that the spirit of the fear of the Lord would come upon our congregation. It is here, but it needs to grow on all of us. May the spirit of the fear of the Lord come upon our souls. Now let's think about that for a moment. If Jesus needed this as a man, how much more do we need to pray it? If you look up Isaiah 11 and you look at the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, that is one of them. Spirit of might, spirit of you know, power, of counsel, all that's there. But one of those is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. If he needed it, how much more do we need it as his children? And I just pray that it grips our hearts. I believe these final words of Mark should leave a lasting impression in our lives. We, God has spoken to us at the table, that ministry that we have with, to one another in the body of Christ and the confirmation of his word, and he's reminded us of the battle that we have with the unseen realm. And I'm telling you, the most important thing is that we, the, the one we obey is the one we believe. If we really believe what is here, we're going to obey him. If we don't do it, then that means we don't believe. It's just that simple. I want to end this because I think we're headed into a time where we as the body of Christ if there was ever a time that we all need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and walking close to God it's right now I came across this paper written by a missionary to Zimbabwe some time ago he was martyred for his Christian faith but I found it so inspirational this guy, he's with the Lord now. And the reason he's with the Lord now, and he's going to have a big crown on his head, no doubt, because of his heart. 
his heart for things of God. Let me read this to you. He wrote this, and these were found in his papers later on. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes, my present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have the right or first or tops or recognized or praise or reward. I live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by the Holy Spirit's power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few. My guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, or deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must must give until I drop, preach until all I know, and all work until He comes. When he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Father, we thank you for such inspirational words and a heart that lived before you. Give us that same heart, that same tenacity, Lord, to serve you no matter what we may face in this coming future in our country or around this world, Lord. We want to be close to you. We desire your presence more than anything else. We need that more than anything else. We ask that you'd pour out your spirit upon us, upon this church, and that you'd fill this place and it would become a lighthouse and a place of deliverance from the darkness that so many are controlled by. We ask, Father, that you'd pour out your spirit now. Fill us with your grace. In Jesus' name.